Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Violence Against Women Act is entering its 30th year, and that time it's had a number of changes to specifically address jurisdiction confusion and gaps that put Native women at greater risk. Only in the past year has language been added to include Native Hawaiian women. We'll get an idea how domestic violence prevention in Hawaii is working. We'll also talk with other Native survivor advocates about what is working and what's not when it comes to protecting Native people. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. Native corporations and tribal organizations, as well as state and federal agencies, have already begun to hold meetings ahead of the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention, but the state's largest gathering officially gets underway on the evening of Wednesday, October 18th. AFN will kick off with an event to honor veterans. Nicole Stoops, one of the organizers for this year's AFN, says it will feature the work of Bill Hess, who has photographed Alaska Native veterans for more than 40 years. There's many in black and white, there are many in color, but they're all very emotional when you look at them. And it's just, just a beautiful story to be told. Emil Nadi, one of the founders of AFN, former Alaska State Senator Jerry Ward, and Benno Cleveland, who earned a Purple Heart in Vietnam. Also that evening, AFN will premiere One with a Whale, a documentary that tells the story of a St. Lawrence Island teenager who landed a whale, a big accomplishment that was soon inundated by a wave of criticism from environmental activists. Stoops says some even made death threats. And to have that type of backlash really, it shows his emotional turmoil and how his family suffered through that but also persevered through it. Stoops says the film will set the tone for the convention and its theme, Our Ways of Life, which will explore how values are shaped by a culture's relationship with the land. We have diverse cultures, diverse languages, but the core values are still there. Our ways of life are still very similar and how we can work together, especially when it comes to those obstacles that we face as Alaska Natives. Each region of the state will be highlighted, followed by panel discussions in part to heal some of the rifts that occurred last year when a bitter debate broke out on the last day of the convention over the Western Alaska salmon crisis. This Saturday, a Western Oregon tribe will celebrate the restoration of its federal recognition. As KLCC's Brian Bull reports, that event will happen at a site undergoing its own restoration. The 1950s saw many tribes' federal status terminated by Congress, resulting in decades of disruption and loss of ancestral lands. The Confederated Tribes of Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Siuslaw Indians were reinstated in 1984 after nearly three decades. To mark that occasion, the tribe will hold several events recognizing its sovereignty, including one at the Siuslaw Estuary outside Florence. Cultural stewardship manager Jesse Beers says this former dairy farm will be restored to its pre-development status, which will benefit salmon. The restoration will also incorporate native language and canoeing into its final design. Restoring the lands and waters, restoring the languages on the landscape within our own hearts and minds, and restoring all the pieces that were stripped from us during the reservation era, during termination, during boarding school era, all those things. A blessing and naming ceremony will complete the project. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull near Florence, Oregon.
The Cherokee Nation hosted a gathering of first language and fluent Cherokee speakers on Tuesday at the Tribes Durban Feeling Language Center at Tahlequah. The event is one of the largest gatherings of fluent Cherokee speakers in modern history. During the gathering, Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. and Deputy Chief Brian Warner spoke about the tribe's historic efforts at saving the Cherokee language and gave a glimpse at some of the tribe's next steps. In 2019, the Council of the Cherokee Nation approved the Durban Feeling Language Preservation Act, a legislation introduced by Chief Hoskin and Chief Warner to provide an initial investment of millions of dollars into Cherokee language efforts, the largest language investment in Cherokee Nation's history. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The Violence Against Women Act is entering its 30th year. Also known as VAWA, the law was intended to improve criminal justice responses to domestic violence cases and later included language to close a loophole that was particularly dangerous for Native women. Just within the last year, lawmakers corrected an oversight that had left out Native Hawaiians. VAWA is one of the tools advocates pin their hopes on to improve the disparity in domestic violence that affects Native Americans. Today on our show, we'll talk with some of these advocates about tribal initiatives, gaps in the criminal justice system, and also what is working. We also want to hear from you. What is your tribe or urban Native community doing to address domestic violence? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. And just a warning, the issues we'll be discussing today might be a difficult topic for some listeners. Let's go ahead and meet today's guests. From the Duck Valley Reservation in Nevada, we're joined by Kathy Gibson. She is the Rural Project Coordinator for the Napuagani Programs for the Shoshone Paiute Tribes on the Duck Valley Reservation. She's also a member of the Shoshone Paiute Tribes of Duck Valley. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sean. In Shawnee, Oklahoma, we have Melody Ibarra. She is the domestic violence advocate with the Citizen Potawatomi Nation's House of Hope. She's an enrolled member of the Apache Tribe of Oklahoma. Melody, welcome to NAC. Thank you so much for having me. Joining us from Austin, Texas is Gina Lungwitz. She's a clinical professor in the domestic violence clinic at the University of Texas School of Law. Hello, Gina. Welcome to you, too. Hi, Sean, and thank you for inviting me. 
In Okmulgee, Oklahoma, we have Sean Partridge. She is the director of the Muscogee Creek Nation Center for Victim Services, and she is a Muscogee tribal member. Welcome to Native America Calling, Sean. Mado, thank you so much, Sean, for having me today. And joining us from Eva Beach, Hawaii, is Dr. Dana Schultz. She is the executive director and founding member of Pohana Onavani. She is Native Hawaiian. Aloha, Dana. Good to have you on the show. Aloha, everyone. Thank you for having me as well. Kathy, I'd like to begin with you today, and, and please provide an overview, if you will, of the jurisdictional issues that impact domestic violence cases there in your community at Duck Valley. Um, keep in mind that o- Owahi is a reservation that borders the Nevada and Idaho state lines. Um, so we fall under our tribal jurisdictions. Uh, we fall under uh, public law, um, and we also fall under the federal law. Uh, within our tribe, we are governed uh, by our tribal council, and our police department is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So they have their regulations, the tribe has their regulations, um, and and with public law 280 just recently, uh, we've had to challenge the case um, of a non-native uh, who abused a tribal member, and getting that process pushed through because we do have VAWA that um, has enacted the right to uh, prosecute non-natives on our reservation. However, there are stipulations that the tribe has to implement, like new updating our law and order codes and being able to provide a defense attorney uh, for the, the, the accused. Um, and, and even the process kind of loses language and, and uh, the procedures of, of how everything follows has been confusing for us in our communities. Um, we uh, work with the, uh, I should say that there has been question as to, you know, with all the laws that have been changed with the Supreme Court decision in 2022 um, uh, of Heretta versus, uh, I think it was Oklahoma, um, I'm, I'm, uh, Dr. Donna, was that, is that correct? Um, are you referring to, are you asking Dana a question, Kathy? Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that that was the right, the right, uh, um, quote for that. Yeah, Dr. Schultz, please feel free to respond. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I, I was quoting the uh, recent uh, 2022 Supreme Court decision. I think it was with Oklahoma versus um, Castro uh, Herrera. Castro Huerta? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dana, are you. So f- it, Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't prepared to respond to that. Okay, yeah, yeah, I thought that might be kind of out of your real well in in, in, in Hawaii. Um, Melody, maybe you could chime in there with regard to to the comment about the Castro Huerta decision that impacted uh, folks there in Oklahoma. Okay, you know, I'm going to go ahead. Let's just, Um, let's kind of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Sean, I'll just I'll just go ahead by saying, for okay. me, research and everything that I needed to have to stand on 
to prosecute and how hold this batter accountable was digging up all this information and and calling each advocate at each area both at the the tribal the BIA the um, district attorney's office and then going as far as up to the US attorney's office to tell them that somebody needs to you know make sure that we're following a procedure and that we hold this this person accountable for what took place here because we're not able to to we have no jurisdiction mm -hmm. over people that are non-Native American. So that was a huge challenge to do um, to get things going. So those are some of the things that I've, I've been trying to work on to get everybody to the table to find out the best way to approach some of the concerns that we have at the grassroots in our rural communities. All right. Kathy, I want to ask you one more question. I'm going to move on to one of our other guests. But what's so concerning here is that a main thrust of, of VAWA, of the Violence Against Women Act, is aimed at preventing these types of jurisdictional conflict. So what is the disconnect here? You know, um, that is a really good question. And, and you know, I'm just returning home. Uh, and from what I could see, it's just getting everybody to the table and understanding jurisdiction. And it seems to be a touchy issue for both tribal and um, uh, the counties that we live in and BIA. And um, we're definitely going to take a look at that within our community within this next year to move forward because some of the things that I think we also need to take a look at is strengthening our community for servicing the men in our community. We service our women, but what are we doing for our men? And then looking at our families because the, the errors of trauma that we, you mentioned earlier, the historic of trauma that we have has affected a whole community. And, and I think we need to start looking at healing everybody to move forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, thanks, Kathy, for going ahead and, and kicking us off here. And <clears throat> let's bring Melody into the conversation now. Again, she's the domestic violence advocate for the Citizen Potawatomi Nation's House of Hope. She is in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And Melody, bring us up to date uh, there in Oklahoma. How does your state stack up when it comes to domestic violence statistics? Um, so in the state of Oklahoma, we are actually number one in the nation for do, um, domestic violence. Um, we've been in the top 10 for probably about 10 years, and recently we've been in the top three. Um, we do have a what's called a the National um, Fatality Review Board that releases those um, intimate partner violence homicides once once a year. Um, so Native Americans are pretty high on that list as well. Um, and just overall, not just in Oklahoma, but it states that four out of five Native American adults experience violence in their lifetime. And 90% of those are from non-Native perpetrators. So a lot of people think that um, violence has happened as Native on Native, and that's not just true. Um, a lot of it is non-Native. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to put that fact out there. Um, Melody, what do you attribute uh, Oklahoma number one in the nation for, for DV uh, statistics? Why is the, the problem so bad there in Oklahoma right now? I think that we need to bring awareness to our state. Um, I think our laws need to be um, worked on a little bit more when it comes to perpetrators. Um, and we need to work collaboratively as a team to, you know, kind of address this issue and see why our laws are, are 
numbers are so high, what we can do is address, I think there's a gap between tribal and state. Um, and I think that happens all over, but we need to figure out a way we can work collaboratively to address these issues, these high numbers. Um, not only are they high, but indigenous women are, well, indigenous people have the highest numbers against them from any other race. So we have the highest numbers in domestic violence, um, even in homicides, we have really high numbers. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Oklahoma as well is many of these folks, I imagine, are in some of these kind of semi-rural, or semi-urban mm-hmm. areas. And does that create some of these logistics with regard to, to some of these non-native perpetrators you describe? Um, I think that's kind of like people think that, you know, most of the stuff happens on reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always true. A lot of it happens off of reservations. Um, we do have a lot of rural land in Oklahoma, and honestly, there's not enough research. People are not reporting domestic violence. Um, they're not going to get services, so it's very, very underreported. So we just don't have the statistics and the data that we need to you know, combat some of these issues that are going on. Thank you, Melody. I encourage anyone listening today with any thoughts or or any questions or or any comments pertaining to DV and its impact in our our, our communities, not just our tribal communities, our reservation communities, but also our urban communities, our semi-rural communities. Uh, We have Native people all over the country who live in in many different types of communities. And and sadly, uh, some of these issues, some of these disparities uh, affect them just as dramatically as anyone else. So anyone with insights, anyone with questions or comments, our phone lines are open right now. Our producers are standing by. We'll take your call. We'll put you on the air. 1-800-996-2848. That's the number to call. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Speaking a native language is a unique skill, but reading and writing it often takes another level of effort and understanding, especially for adult language learners. To help keep languages thriving, Alaska is looking for ways to develop native language standards for schools. We'll hear about ways schools and tribes are integrating language learning and daily life on the next Native America Calling. Now's the time for all children over six months old to be vaccinated for the flu. Here's Dr. Sandy Chung, president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, with more. It's okay to get both COVID and flu vaccines during the same visit, and it's often the most convenient way for busy parents. Children who are vaccinated for flu are 50% less likely to go to the ER. Visit HealthyChildren.org to learn more. The American Academy of Pediatrics supports this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the efforts that are working and what issues still need work in preventing domestic violence that impacts Native communities. We'd also like to hear from you. How is your tribe addressing the problem of domestic violence? It is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. 
Our first two guests, Kathy Gibson and Melody Ibarra, they are both DV advocates. Kathy's in Nevada and Melody is in Oklahoma. And Melody, I have another question for you specifically with regard to some of these jurisdictional challenges we're talking about. And can you talk about the effectiveness of both tribal and state victim protective orders there in Oklahoma? Is there a tribal component there that's different from how the state handles this? So um, when you file a protective order through tribal um, to tribal court, Oklahoma State has what's called a foreign uh, VPO, which means they they the state statute says that they recognize those tribal VPOs. And I think within the state statutes, it lists like the tribes that they recognize that have those courts available. Um, so they're supposed to recognize them. So if you go to tribal court and you get your VPO and you there's a violation off a of tribal property, like at a grocery store, police are supposed to honor that VPO. Okay. Thank you, Melody. And Kathy, uh, you've been a DV specialist for, for a number of years. Can you tell us what has improved and what progress that you've seen that you're happy with? Protection orders? Protection orders? Okay. And how so? The process, has it been streamlined? Are they more effective? What's your thought? Um, you know, what? within the two years that I've been with this program, I think everything's been a steady um, education for all areas, not only tribal but state and federal, because the full faith and credit protection orders aren't always understood when I have a tribal member who travels up to um, Montana or Dakotas and they're living in a city there and an incident occurs, I mean, I'm having to get our prosecutor on the line. I'm having to get uh, their prosecutors to talk, to uh, adhere to the full faith and credit for protection orders. So that is that is one of the things that we're working on. And and I feel that it does need still more work. Still so needs the education more work. of everybody being on that same page. All right. Thank you, Kathy. I want to bring Gina Lungwitz into the conversation now. And there uh, is a, was a recent case, uh, the United States versus Rahimi, and it got a lot of headlines. It's still getting a lot of headlines, in fact. And uh, I'd like for Gina, who is with uh, the University of Texas School of Law, to, to help us out here and provide some clarification. Gina, what exactly is the United States versus Rahimi case? And how does it apply with regard to potential DV cases? Well, to tag on to what you've been talking about with protective orders, it has to do a little bit with protective orders. It's a case out of Arlington, Texas. There was a man named Zaki Rahimi whose girlfriend obtained a protective order against him in February of 2020. He was claiming that he had a, she was claiming he had assaulted her. And the protective order expressly stated that he could not possess a firearm, but even if it hadn't, under federal statute, anyone subject to an order that contains certain prohibitions, which almost every protective order will, can't possess a firearm. So that was in uh, February of 2020. On December 1st of 2020, after selling narcotics to somebody, Mr. Rahimi fired multiple shots into that person's residence. Then the day after that, he was involved in a car accident, and he shot at the other driver, fled the scene, then returned to the scene in a different vehicle and shot at the other driver's car. Then three weeks later, he shot at a constable's car, and then um, a couple weeks later, 
he was at a Whataburger with his friend, and his friend's uh, credit card was declined, and so he fired multiple shots into the air. That all led to probably other criminal charges, but um, one of those criminal charges was that he was indicted by a federal grand jury for illegal possession of a firearm. He asked the court to dismiss that indictment, saying that that federal law was unconstitutional. The lower court denied that motion. He pled guilty, and then he appealed. And it went to the Fifth Circuit, which is where cases from that area of the country will be appealed. And originally, the Fifth Circuit found that his argument was foreclosed, but they withdrew that opinion after a U.S. Supreme Court case uh, came down in another gun-related case. Um, that case is called the Bruin case. Um, and the Fifth Circuit then found that that law that he was found to have violated, that you can't have a gun if you have a protective order against you, uh, that law was found to be unconstitutional by the Fifth Circuit. And that was a... Um, so what's going to happen now is it's being appealed up to the United States Supreme Court, which will hear argument on November 7th in that case. Gina, thank you for that thorough background. Rahimi, he violated a protective order, and that's really at the heart of so much of what we're talking about today. What are some issues you're seeing generally with protective orders, and why are they so important uh, for people that are either victimized or survivors of, of DV incidents and crimes? Well, in my experience, and I've done this work for about 33 years now, um, protective orders are the best legal option we have to prevent future violence. It's a civil court order that if violated has criminal consequences. So it'll say things like you can't go within a certain distance here in Texas. It's usually 200 yards of where you're, uh, the person you committed family violence against lives or works or goes to school or the children are in daycare, that sort of thing. But, but it's a civil court order that, if it's violated, has criminal consequences. So, in other words, you can be immediately arrested mm-hmm. for violation of a protective order, which makes it kind of an unusual legal animal. Um, And we see the cases in the news where they're ineffective. You know, you'll read a news headline where somebody who has a protective order is then injured or killed. Right. But the vast majority um, of them work. Um, There are a lot of people out there who don't who don't want to go to jail. Um, Mm. And so just some statistics we have. on guns and domestic violence. And these are from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. So these are are across the country. The presence of a gun in a domestic violence situation increases the risk of homicide by 500%. Wow. Um, 35% of all women killed by men are killed by intimate partners with guns. And... um, There's also a big connection between mass shootings and domestic violence. Um, Between 2014 and 2019, 68.2% of mass shooters killed at least one family member and had a history of domestic violence. So um, the correlation, you know, the kinds of guns people can buy now are, uh, you know, you can shoot off a bunch of rounds really fast and, uh, 
it's just, I think guns and domestic violence are a huge issue. Gina, so now with this case, U.S. versus Rahimi, uh, from my understanding here, so it's very possible now that uh, people who have been convicted or people who have protective orders with regard to domestic violence, they'll 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 be able to be gun owners. They could have a gun in the home. They could have a gun in their vehicle, and this could create well, huge risks going forward. Um, we we will find out. Most states also have their own prohibitions. Um, I, I know here in Texas, in addition to the federal law, there's also a state law that says if you have a protective order, you can't uh, own or possess a firearm. And so, um, you know, at the moment, uh, we have that to hang on to, although that can be, uh, that's on pretty shaky ground. But that's a Fifth Circuit opinion. That's not anything that is um, across the country, uh, at least not yet. But this is a pretty, I think this is a really important case um, mm-hmm. for survivors of domestic violence. All right. Gina, any other potentially significant legal cases that DV prevention advocates are, are watching right now? Oh, uh, nationally, I don't know. Um, not not anything. This is the one I've been paying attention to. I was uh I signed on to an amicus brief in the Rahimi case, so that's the one I have really had a uh, kind of a laser focus on right now. All right. Well, thanks, Gina. Let's go ahead and get a tribal perspective now on U.S. versus Rahimi. And to do that, we have Sean Partridge. Again, she's in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. She's the director of the Muscogee Creek Nation Center for Victim Services. And uh, Sean, thanks again for joining us today. And how closely are you following the U.S. versus Rahimi case? And what do you think the significance is there for tribal communities? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So we are following this very, very closely, and I really appreciate um, that you had Gina on the line today to talk about this case. We, um, the nation, is actually one of 12 sites um, across the nation, the only tribe that's participating in a federal firearms TA project that is funded by the Office on Violence Against Women. So we have a site coordinator that is following this case very closely because, as Gina had mentioned, and the research is abundantly clear that firearms um, and domestic violence is a very lethal combination. And so what's really alarming is that when it comes to protective orders, judges are making findings that a person poses a credible threat um, to the physical safety of another individual. And so they are making that finding. They're determining that there is cause for concern and that somebody's life is potentially at risk. And so the thought of, um, so clearly somebody that's found to be a credible threat to someone else, the idea that that individual would have access to a firearm is even more alarming. And I know Gina had mentioned some of the statistics there, and some that I had seen also say that um, a homicide, you know, increases by potentially up to a thousand percent. I mean, the research is overwhelmingly clear that firearms, in a combination with DV, is very, very lethal. Um, so again, this is something that the tribe, as we are. 
um, have an incredible, you know, collaborative response internally and that we're working to strengthen with our state and federal partners. Um, this is an area that we're very concerned about where we're trying to increase responses to domestic violence and reduce domestic violence, increase safety. So this is a very alarming um, case for all of us. Mm -hmm. And and what are some of those challenges you're facing, Sean, with regard to increasing uh, this uh, response to DV there in Oklahoma? Sure. Well, and I'm probably like many areas around the country. I mean, we're in Oklahoma where people love their guns. And unfortunately, there's a real, um, you know, lack of willingness to look at, um, acknowledge the alarming statistics that several of the speakers have mentioned today. You know, Oklahoma being first in the nation for domestic violence, according to the Violence Policy Center, we are um, second in the nation for women killed by men. We know that firearms are responsible for a large number of, of those homicides um, and just violence, not only in Oklahoma, but across the nation. And so trying to not only educate people about, um, you know, the, just the, you know, um, challenges with domestic violence, the, the threat of domestic violence, um, in addition to having them understand, you know, the correlation with firearms, it's, it's a really challenging, um, you know, battle that, that we face every day. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, you mentioned in Oklahoma that there's a, a lot of gun owners and, and they're passionate. And is there any statistics with regard to like the types of guns that are that are most could potentially be the most uh, at risk for, for people that have protective words? Like like I'm thinking of like a, a high caliber handgun versus maybe like something, a hunting mm -hmm. rifle or something like that. Is, is that on your radar at all? Or is it just pretty much any gun really presents a, a serious risk in this situation? Sure. And I do, you know, in reviewing some of the Oklahoma uh, Domestic Violence Fatality um, Review Board, their latest report that actually came out, I believe, a year ago, um, and it mentioned handguns um, being, um, I think, the highest percentage of weapon that was utilized to um, murder um, victims in the state. And so, but I think the reality is, is that, you know, any firearm poses a very um, credible and high risk um, to victims of domestic um, violence. And so I know Gina had also mentioned, and again, the evidence, um, the research is very clear, um, that correlation between mass shooters and a history of domestic violence. And so we also know that domestic violence calls um, uh, can be the most uh, risky for law enforcement in responding. So, um, you know, one of the, the ways that we're really trying to tackle this at Muskogee Creek Nation, it's not only looking at increasing victim and survivor. I mean, on public safety, but it's also an officer safety issue. And so that's also something that we're very concerned about. Good information here. Uh, Native America Calling. We have some really, really 
knowledgeable, well-informed guests uh, representing a wide range of tribal communities and native programs. And we are going to take another break here in just a moment. But again, I encourage listeners to join this conversation. Chime in. We've got our phone lines open now, and we'd really like to hear from some folks who uh, have some knowledge of uh, DV and their communities. Give us a call. Our number is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, 1-800-996-2848, or even if you don't feel like calling in, you know, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got a website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, and we have been having so much, so much good engagement with our social media channels. Uh, we just set a record about a week and a half ago with one of our posts. We just had so many people that responded and commented, liked that post. So uh, let's keep that going. Let's always remember to keep our social media handles uh, fresh and invigorated. So folks, you can always connect with us through Facebook, Instagram as well. But again, the phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. It is Domestic Violence Awareness Month in the United States, October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So we're discussing uh, some of these issues on our show today. And again, a reminder, this is a tough topic. It certainly is. And uh, please uh, always, always be mindful of your self-care when we talk about these sensitive issues here on Native America Calling. Stay with us, folks. We're going to be right back. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Blood Sisters by Vanessa Lilly, about a Cherokee archaeologist summoned to rural Oklahoma to investigate the disappearance of two women, one of them her sister. This and other stories at prh.com slash storiesoftheland. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There's still time to join our conversation today about domestic violence. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're going to head west now for another perspective. We're going to head really far west, in fact, all the way to Eva Beach, Hawaii, where we have Dr. Dana Schultz. She is a domestic violence advocate and Dana, I want to thank you again for joining us and, and appreciate your patience. We have a, a, a lot of guests like this. It usually takes us a little bit of time to filter through all of our, our different guests. So thank you for joining us. Uh, aloha and welcome again to our show. Aloha and mahalo. No problems with waiting. I appreciate the opportunity to join you this morning. Absolutely. Well, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what the issues are there on the islands of Hawaii. What has been the progress for DV prevention since the Violence Against Women Act was updated last year to include Native Hawaiian people? Well, it was a long time coming, as Native people can probably all say, we were grateful to finally be included in uh, VAWA 2022, which opened the doors for funding possibilities, which is what allowed my agency to um, be born in regards to the first Native Hawaiian Resource Center on domestic violence. So we're very grateful for the opportunity. Um, 
that I can say as a survivor myself, I would not have thought this would come in my lifetime, but I'm so grateful for that, along with you know other opportunities to serve our, our population because Native Hawaiians do have the highest percentages of interpersonal partner violence and domestic violence compared to our white counterparts or other ethnicities within the state of Hawaii. Mm. Well, tell us more about the Resource Center. What do you folks do and what are your current projects? So we have uh, several deliverables that we are working on. Uh, In year one, which just ended in September, we focused on having talking circles is what the term you all may be familiar with. However, we titled it Papa Olelo, which translates into more of a classroom, talk room setting for survivors and providers, along with family members of domestic violence. So we service um, three islands, and we had 14 communities in all, 22 survivors and 24 providers um, that participated in our talk story sessions, which actually is very culturally relevant for us. as a very oral culture. We do a lot of talking. We share everything orally. We're not written um, kind of culture. So we launched that and got really great responses to from survivors and providers, um, especially for survivors, which is what we were gearing toward, to provide a safe space for them to come and build a trusting relationship, which is also what we focus on in our Native Hawaiian culture is the relationships between each other, between our elements, and of course with our higher power. Um, And in year two, which we just started, we are going to be working on curriculum development. Um, We've partnered with National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. So they shared with us their conversations with communities. And we're now birthing curriculum with five different communities statewide. So that could be different islands, different communities that focuses on risk and protective factors within the Native Hawaiian community, um, through our culture, and also looking at how the federal and state laws can also play either um, a helpful part in it or it can be a barrier in that. Mm -hmm. We're also going to be revitalizing another Native Hawaiian curriculum that has since taken a break because there's been no... um, no one is able to train others and provide that service because it is copyrighted and owned by Dr. Kale Kanuha. So she's going to be joining us also in year two. Dana, I'm interested in learning more uh, about the curriculum you folks are developing. And um, I'm also interested, do you target youth uh, with regard to like DV information and awareness? And if so, like what's a, a, an appropriate age to introduce a a young person to some of these issues? So thus far, we focus primarily on adults. However, as a social worker and um, psychologist within the field, we've seen people introduce domestic violence um, in the middle school. So middle school starts at sixth grade here in Hawaii. Just being able to have those conversations at that level Um, is important because we are seeing an uptick in domestic violence within our our teenage population. Mm -hmm. And it could be due to intergenerational cycles of violence where 
children don't know that's not okay. Um, they see it in their families, and they think this is how life should be. So we would say about sixth grade would be a good starting point. All right. In the talking circles you mentioned, um, what kind of folks participate in those talking? Do you have survivors? Do you also have um, perhaps possible offenders as well? Or is, how are those structured? So currently we have survivors, providers, family members, people in the community. We had a couple of uh, rehabilitated perpetrators or offenders um, join us. So that's also been interesting. Um, We are working on focusing on more perpetrator rehabilitation. So there is a separate component, which we just got separate funding for to do a men's or perpetrators group to be able to focus on self-identity and going back to our culture and recognizing that our kane, our men, should be protectors and providers um, and not conform to the uh, ways of abuse that were introduced through colonization. Dana, you shared earlier that you yourself are are a survivor. Is that what motivated you to take up this line of work? Most definitely. This without a doubt. And this is going to be to my last breath. I would say to my last call. Um, you don't have to pay me money because before we got funding, I was doing this work, you know, in, in the realms of domestic violence advocacy in which we know nonprofit work, you really work for love. So I'm going to be just a advocate to the very last breath of me. Well, Dana, really, really applaud uh, you and, and your efforts and all of our, our guests on the show today that are just doing such Wonderful work uh, supporting their communities and uh, in this pressing time. Again, it is Domestic Violence Month, October here in the United States. And uh, Sean Partridge, I'd like to go back to you. And if you could, um, what are some other initiatives, uh, recent efforts there to address DV by the Muscogee Nation that you work for? Sure, absolutely. We, you know, it's a very, very historic time for us um, with the Supreme Court's um, recognition of our reservation, um, that decision that came out on July 9th of 2020. And so since that time, I mean, it has been very, very busy. Um, We've encountered a lot of challenges. Um, There's also a lot of good things that are happening. And the nation just overall, I mean, takes our this responsibility um, very, very seriously. And so um, we have tons of things that are going on. Um, We've got, um, they've implemented our our Light Horse Tribal Police Department um, has implemented a specialized DV, uh, Domestic Violence Investigation Unit. Um, They've just kicked off a new domestic violence probation uh, program. We, the nation, and I appreciate, I believe it was Kathy that had mentioned earlier, um, needing to focus on men or the people that are doing the harm. And that's something that we are are just um, starting with planning, um, is looking at how we can develop um, our own treatment uh, program and services for offenders um, and for people doing harm. So that's a really critical piece um, that we're excited to get going. We do have our federal firearms uh, project that is up and running. Um, we're working very closely with our, fe- our uh, federal partners um, on that project. 
Um, our program specifically, we're developing our tribe's first uh, domestic violence shelter. And so that's also another really critical piece when it comes to trying to provide comprehensive services um, across our reservation. And so um, just, you know, overall, there's a lot that's happening. I think one of the, the best things and that's going to make us the most successful um, as we respond, um, you know, and meet these challenges and this increased responsibility that we have is really our collaborative partnerships internally here at the nation amongst our victim services program, our tribal law enforcement, our court, our Office of Attorney General, you know, all the different programs, um, offices that are part of our, our justice system, in addition to working closely with our state and federal partners. And so I think for a long time, unfortunately, um, you know, tribes have not been um, recognized or acknowledged for the work that we're doing, the services that we're providing, you know, in many areas, and especially here in Oklahoma, we're, we've been leading the efforts, I think, for uh, collaborative responses to domestic violence and sexual assault. And so um, we're just trying to move forward and, um, you know, do the very best that we can every day and right. just, you know, working to increase those responses. Appreciate, appreciate it, Sean. Thank you. We have time for, for one call. We're going to squeeze this in. Darren, who's listening up in northern Minnesota on KBFT. Darren, really appreciate you calling in, but please keep your comments brief, your questions brief, because we are uh, running down on the show here. Okay. I'd just like to shout out to all the victim service workers out there. They're doing a really good job. And I see a lot of good programs and uh, recovery efforts going on. Uh, one thing I don't hear a lot of talk about is, is teaching our young ones in school um, how to have healthy relationships and uh, giving them tools to manage their relationships and uh, like when to get out of an unhealthy relationship. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on uh, changing the education system to, to help people you know, have healthy relationships. Appreciate it, Darren. Good call. Sean, go ahead and respond. Uh, healthy relationships. I know earlier we had Dana mention, you know, middle school. That's in some cases a time to introduce these topics. What are your thoughts on that? Just encouraging healthy relationships amongst our young people. Absolutely. I think the younger we can start, the better. And we have to realize that as adults, we're modeling, you know, the behavior that we're modeling, our kids are learning from. And so all of us as adults have a responsibility to work on ourselves and make sure that we are modeling that respectful, that healthy um, behavior when it comes to relationships. And I don't think we can ever start early enough. And definitely those prevention efforts really are key to overcoming and addressing the issues that our people have experienced, you know, as far as generations. And um, so prevention is key. All right. Gina, I have a quick question for you. We have an anonymous caller who asked whether there are any additional protections when it comes to police who are statistically more likely to offend, and they always have guns. Um, any thoughts on that, Gina? Well, there are statistics on that, um, but I don't have them at my fingertips. Um, there are statistics on uh, law enforcement being offenders, if that, if I'm understanding the correct Right, yeah, I think the that's the, question the gist of the question, right. Yeah, I, there are statistics on that. I just don't have them memorized. Okay, no worries, no but, worries. That they are, so what I can say is that 
they have higher rates of uh, domestic violence than non-law enforcement officers. And are there any... It can be surprising. And what's the thought on that? Like, why why do we see that that statistic with law enforcement? Is it the nature of the work or the stress? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, I I could probably write a thesis on on <laughs> why that is, um, but um, I think that uh, well, I don't want to I don't want to make guesses about that. I'm not comfortable making guesses sure. about that. What, what, one thing I, I would like to point out, though, is um, there is a national domestic violence hotline that somebody who, wherever they are in the country, if they're looking for resources and help with domestic violence, uh, the number for that is 1-800-799-SAFE, S-A-F-E. And I would encourage people to call that if they want, uh, if, they, if they need help. We're one, looking for resources. Thank you, Gina. 1-800-799-SAFE. That's the Domestic Violence National Hotline. Good information to have here on the show. And, Sean, I want to give you the last word here, Sean Partridge. Uh, it's been almost the 30th anniversary of VAWA. And just if you could wrap up our conversation today in about a minute, how significant has VAWA been for Native women? Obviously, there are still some challenges. But overall, what's your thought? Oh my gosh, yes, VAWA is critical, and the great thing about VAWA, which the newly um, confirmed um, OVW director, Rosie Hildalgo, when they were here for tribal consultation here in Oklahoma the first part of August, you know, also reminding us too, I mean, VAWA is um, increased and its provisions are enhanced with each uh, reauthorization. And we know with VAWA 2013, the restoration of criminal jurisdiction over non-natives was significant for tribes. VAWA 22 expanded uh, the restoration of that jurisdiction, adding six additional uh, crimes that tribes um, now are able to hold non-natives accountable for. So, I mean, VAWA is a significant piece when it comes to increasing safety for Native women. Well, with that, we are at the end of our hour. I want to thank all of our guests who joined us today. Dana Schultz, Sean Partridge, Melody Ibarra, Jean Lungwitz, and Kathy Gibson for a really, really enlightening, impactful conversation here on Native America Calling. Join us tomorrow as we take a look at efforts to build Native language reading and writing methods for both young people and adults. I hope you'll tune in. I'm Sean Spruce. My precious relatives, protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the 9th Annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. 
The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.